David, clearly this is an emotional day for you, but I wonder what are the, the conflicting emotions with, on one hand, clearly accomplishing a goal that many people saw as pretty daunting for the last couple of years to get back and put this uniform on one more time while at the same time knowing that it won't go on beyond that? Um, it had always been my mindset, and I, I will say throughout this process, a lot of times my mind and my heart were telling me one thing and my body was telling me something completely different. Um, but at the start of this process, you know, it's always, you know, I, I can do this, you know, I can do this. And the, the goal when I was injured was to come back as the player that I expected myself to be. Um, once things ramped up and baseball activities got tougher and certainly the games became for me more of just let me get through this and survive it. It became more apparent to me that that goal is now I just want to put this uniform on again. <clears throat> and I needed the baseball stuff and I needed the games to, for my body to kind of finally tell me, you know, it's not happening, it's not working. David, just to be clear, be, because you didn't say it, but this, this, is, this is it, right? This final weekend and then? I will say, yeah, I will say, um, you know, physically and <clears throat> the way I feel right now and from everything that the doctors have told me, there's not going to be any improvement. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see that as a possibility. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, September 16th, 2018. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Of course, coming in, into the program today, you heard uh, a brief clip from the David Wright press conference from earlier this week. The inevitable but sad news that Wright uh, will play one more time. We'll probably see a couple of pinch hit appearances on the next homestand, and then that will be it for a career. And joining me in uh, just a bit, you'll he actually you'll hear a spot I did earlier today before the game uh, with Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. Greg, uh, almost my Mets historian. You know, his site has become that that kind of that kind of role within the community. So 
Greg will be joining me. Who better to talk about David Wright and some of the feelings and emotions that uh, you know he's going through and obviously the fan base is going through. And you'll also hear, courtesy of our good friends over at MetsMarsOnline.com, which if you haven't, go check out the video part of this uh, pretty cool tribute they put together, spliced with a bunch of David Wright highlights from throughout his uh, career. So where do we start? Because I've been pretty hard on David Wright over the last couple of weeks, wrote a column about a week ago, essentially saying, hey, look, you know, this ain't happening. I I was taking a counterpoint to the media that that was almost demanding that the Mets just give the position to Wright for as long as he wanted because the Mets were out of the race. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. David Wright needs to earn the position, despite the fact that you know, he's this great player and he's done so much and, and he's the captain and and what have you. And here's what I will say. Wright worked really hard to get back to just being able to play in rehab games and, and to his words, survive a big league game at, let's face it, not even the big league level, at the professional level, the minor league level. What has he earned? Because you're going to say, well, now are you backtracking? No, he's earned the right, I guess, to have his day. There's no doubt. I mean, he's putting the time uh, with this franchise. Yes, he's gotten rewarded handsomely from a financial standpoint, but even with the work he's put in over the last couple of years, and he will be rewarded financially, of course, even though he won't be playing after this year, he deserves his day. And it made me take a a step back hearing the news because we knew it was coming. I knew it was coming, and... I almost expected it to come knowing right he was going to come to spring training, really try to put the time in, and we were going to be sitting sometime late March in Port St. Lucie having a press conference where Wright basically says, I can't do this anymore. And he's he'd be performing poorly throughout the spring, not being able to get the shoulder, the neck, the back, whatever was hurting him into gear. But that's not the way this goes down. It's going to go down in a better fashion where he says, you know what, he probably could have done that, but I think he wants to have that moment at City Field in front of the fans, and I have no problem with that. See, to me, that's different than what I felt a lot of the media and the fans what were saying was just like, put him out there. You know, what's the big deal? Well, you can see this team is trying to win. They're trying to put as many wins and develop as much momentum into 2019 as possible. There's jobs on the line here. There's a manager who has to prove himself. There are players that that want to stay and thrive in the big leagues. So they're not interested necessarily in a prolonged ceremonial September, despite the fact that the fans and the media might be. But with all that being said, that's not what this is about. It is about looking at how, and that's the other part that came to my mind, how we treat superstar players in this town and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else so I'm not pointing the finger at the fans or the media on this one what I'm saying is that we tend to appreciate the players after they're no longer an option or they're gone the funny part about all the platitudes about right is that I could so I go back to the early days when I first started with blogs, and I was on WGBB. I'm talking, I started this thing in 2007, so right after the 2006 postseason, in the heart of the collapse. And I vividly remember debates about Wright and Reyes not being clutch, uh, Wright specifically, not being a team leader, 
not being the guy you can build around, the media getting on his case. You know, there was a gear missing. And I, I bought into some of that stuff as well at times because Wright was such a nice guy. He wasn't the fiery guy. And you had all this other garbage going on around him on the team. Unbeknownst to us, it had nothing to do with the players on the field. It had to do with the manager and the dysfunction that came from within the front office. That's really what undid those teams. Tony Bernazon and whatnot. But I remember that, and I think back to these great players that have gone through this town. Guys like Patrick Ewing, Mark Messier. Um, you know, even to a certain degree early on in 96 when Joe Torre came in and the Yankees before they won that series. I mean, everybody was waiting to run Joe Torre and to torch that team until they came back against the Braves. And now it's Didi, that, that 90s Yankees team is the gold standard. Eli Manning and the Giants, I mean, the guys won a couple of Super Bowls. I know that he certainly uh, has always had his flaws. And, and, and some of his flaws now as he gets into his late 30s are being more and more exposed. But I feel like once he's gone, the fans will love and appreciate his body of work more than they do now. And that's the way we are around here. And I guess that's what makes New York different. And it makes this situation with David Wright no different. Because just when you want to start appreciating the guy, he's gone. And it's almost like, well, wait, wait. Well, it's gone. It's, it's, it's not an option anymore. So that's what made me think about one of the things that came up to me or came to my mind um, when I was thinking about what was going on with Wright and, and all those other things was exactly that. I and mean, Patrick Ewing, a guy that nobody really ever had warm and fuzzy feelings for. Media-wise, he was kind of surly. Everybody, the fans, focused on what he did not do or what he did not accomplish. And now two decades later, everyone's begging somebody to bring the Knicks to the same relevancy that Patrick had throughout his tenure up until about 2001. You would take that. You take those bad years now if you're a Knicks fan over over what you had for the better part of two decades, including some of the brief good times that the Carmelo Anthony era brought. But, you know, the part also about Wright that stands out to me is is that some people may say, well, he didn't really have that great farewell. I mean, he's just going to get a celebratory game. That means nothing in the scope of the season, whether the Mets win or lose. But 2015 really was the capper for him because that's when the injuries started. That's when the stenosis, you know, when he was diagnosed officially with the stenosis. And he came back for the final 30 games, hit typically just like David Wright would hit. So there was really no reason to believe he was any different of a player than he was before. I mean, he gave you exactly in a lot of ways what you expected. And... I think about that postseason, and it's and so many people talk about Murphy, 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 rightfully so. The guy did Babe Ruth. But if not for Wright's hit in Game 1, the Mets don't win Game 1 off of Kershaw. That big hit late. Murphy's home run kept them tied, but it was Wright's hit that put them in the lead. He had a big hit, and he actually played pretty well against the Cubs in the NLCS. And then he had the home run in the World Series. And yes, I know his throw or his defense cost them, you know, game one a little bit. Uh, it cost them in that game five. Duda gets blamed for the throw, but 
the reason that that play even happens is because of Wright's inability to really get the ball over to first. Uh, they knew he was slinging it and his arm was hurting him. But regardless, David Wright gets overshadowed because of Murphy, because of the pitchers. And he, no David Wright, they may not win the division. Uh, there's no postseason. There's no David Wright in, in a big hit in game one. And there may not be a big game five to win in L.A. So that's something to to really think about. And most importantly, I think about what could have been, because if you take it from a pure, and Joel Sherman wrote about this in the New York Post this week and how with analytics providing so much you know, information that allows us to peel the onion and really look at players and, and really sanitize and take a lot of the emotion out that used to exist, even in the front offices and on a field, it sometimes takes away, away from the game. And he in his column, it was in context of home run and RBIs and wins, things that fans would hang on to for individual performances, even when their team is out of the race. See, now with Jacob deGrom and, and with another no decision, as you saw today, you're really not chasing a Cy Young in the traditional sense with wins. You're trying to see how well he pitches and how he, how well he pitches within a weighted context to see if he can win it. And that's not as fun as chasing 20 wins, not as much fun as chasing 61 or 62 homers or whatever you want to call it. It's not as fun as 300, chasing 300 or a batting title. People are always telling you now, you know, writers and fans say, well, that's not important. So with Wright... If you look at the cold, hard facts, and some of that is what I've been doing over the last few weeks to try to counter a lot of the narrative that's out there by the media, because I really didn't like it, it was, well, the guy can't play, it's time to move on. And this is much needed clarity, I think, for the organization. Not as much needed as the whole Cespedes rigmarole that we talked about, but more about, we knew that David Wright wasn't able to play at any kind of level on an everyday basis. Maybe, best case scenario, he could have been a contributing player in a 200-plate appearance, maybe 300-plate appearances. Everything went right. Medically, that wasn't realistic. And from a financial standpoint, that wasn't in the team's best interest with the kind of money that he was scheduled to make. So when you look at this, back when the Mets were in baseball purgatory in 2012, and I talked about this, Wright signed on for more with a long-term contract. When Ray, you know Beltran had been traded, Reyes was, was, was shown the door, it did not look like the team was willing to invest in the roster. It was almost like draft, rebuild, get the money cleaned up, you know, wait for Harvey, wait for the young pitchers like Wheeler, and then invest in the team then, which they did starting two years later, and then get to the World Series in 2015. But Wright signed on for that, when in reality, probably because the team wasn't willing to compete, the best thing to do at that time was to trade him. Send him to St. Louis or Atlanta or whatever team Detroit that was a contender and, and may have been in the market for a third baseman. And the Mets didn't do that. Now you wonder, would the Mets have been in a better spot? What kind of haul could they have gotten at that time for an in-prime David Wright who was not diagnosed with any of this? Probably a lot, uh, but you never know. And then would that have made the moment of 2015 as special? Sure, if they get to the World Series is, is as special, but... Maybe Wright brought some intangibles that we can't talk about here and we don't know about because we don't know. We can't measure them. So sometimes it's it's weird how things work out. 
2015 still would have been special, but because Wright is part of it, because of his standing with this team, I mean, think about it. And I wrote about this in the piece over at MetsmerizedOnline.com on, on Friday. There's never been a more seamless transition of eras in Mets history than Piazza to Wright. I mean, he came in and he performed at a high level almost immediately from day one. That just doesn't happen. You know, there was the Seaver, how things ended badly twice. Carter Hernandez led to the worst team money combined, a bit of a down period. Piazza came in as an outsider and had to really earn it. And I remember, right, almost when you started hearing that this guy's the real deal, a couple of years into his minor league career, you know, you knew this was going to be the guy. Like, for whatever reason, you knew this was going to be the guy. And that very rarely happens. I remember saying, this is going to be the face of the franchise. This is going to be the guy that they're going to build around. And, um, you know, it happened. And, uh, and, and, and here we are, unfortunately... You look at Wright's career, he's not a Hall of Famer. He's the best positional player, probably, when you add all things together, including intangibles and time in Mets uniform in team history. You can argue that with the Strawberries and the Beltrons of the world that were that have, that have donned the uniform. But he's not a Hall of Famer. If his career had just averaged out at what he did from 2004 to 2008, you know, he's at least in the conversation in, as a top 10 all-time third baseman. Uh, he's probably still at that point in the Scott Rowland, maybe slightly above. Maybe he gets into the Chipper Jones conversation, but I think Chipper was a a better offensive player than than Wright. He's not that's a debate that's not gonna happen. But in terms of Mets fans, it's all positive. They'll get a chance to walk away and say goodbye, and hopefully something fabulous happens that night, something dramatic. You know, maybe something along the lines that you saw at Yankee Stadium when Derek Jeter said goodbye. And, um, you know, in a couple of years or five years, they'll probably do the same thing with Wright that they did with Piazza. They'll wait for his number to be retired. Uh, They'll wait for him to be in the Hall of... uh, They'll wait a few years for him to retire his number. I mean, obviously he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame, but I think there needs to be some separation. I suspect it'll be after his contract is up because he's medically unable to play. So how do you retire a number for someone who's not retiring, right? There's always the business side there. Again, those cold, hard facts. So anyway, um, this is not a time to talk about the business side of the game and the cold, hard facts and all the things that we know David Wright is not. It's about remembering what he was, flawed and all at times, and the run that the Mets had under him, which unfortunately had some... Really high highs, a lot of lows, some not-so-good moments. But in the end, it's another chapter in Mets history that is closed. And on to the next, as an individual covers the team, roots for the team. You as individuals who listen and root for the team, you got to move on. And you put it in the books to quote Howie Rose and on to the next. Who will that next individual be? I don't know. Is it Michael Conforto? Is it Brandon Nimmo? Is it Jeff McNeil? Is it somebody that's not even on the roster now? Who knows? But there will be another. And uh, unfortunately, unlike 2004 when Wright was brought up and when Mike Piazza was on his inevitable decline and on the way out, there will not be the same clean, smooth, obvious transition that the team experienced back then. So anyway, let's take a short break. Let's hear the tribute, courtesy of MetsmerizedOnline.com, to David Wright. And when we come back, you'll hear my conversation with Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing, 
right before the game earlier today as uh, Greg remembers David Wright, his thoughts on some of the conversation I had earlier with you guys, some of my thoughts and things that came to mind after the announcement by David Wright that he, after the September 29th appearance, will no longer be medically able to, let's not say retirement, medically able to play. So anyway, we'll be back with more right after this. See veteran players around the league who are jaded. I've told myself from day one that as soon as it feels like this is work, as soon as it feels like I have a, a normal job and I'm going to work every day, it's time to hang them up and do something else. This game is, is too fun to right. treat this like work. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and I enjoy coming to the park every day, and that's the mindset I have.
New York fans get that. They, they, they see the passion that I have for the game. They see the passion that I have you know, for wanting to help this organization win. tribute video from our good friends over at uh, MetsmarizedOnline.com, and I have with us uh, guest of the day. I uh, actually had him listening into it while on hold, and he's joining us now, Faith and Fear in Flushing, Greg Prince. Greg, uh, you know, look, we're going to talk David Wright, so I figured why not get the juices flowing? I'm sure you've probably watched these highlights and videos over the last, oh, not just a couple of days, 15 or so years, but always nice to get warmed up for a segment, and welcome in, and uh I guess I'll throw it to you, you know, kind of a somber week, uh, but also a week where we can uh, begin to celebrate uh, a great Met and and maybe arguably the best offensive player in Mets history. Yeah, thank you for having me, first of all. And, yes, it is a uh, – to, to uh, quote Paul Simon, who will also be saying goodbye from Flushing Meadow uh, on a Saturday in September, uh, a strange and mournful week if not a strange and mournful day when David made his announcement. And uh, it will be uh, even stranger to say goodbye to him. But, uh, you know, this has been a long time in coming. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm just glad that resolution is here because it felt unfair to David uh, to a certain extent, not not right for the fans. No pun intended if I say right anymore because I probably will and, not, not trying to be cute about it, um, right without a W, that is. But, uh, you know, we were sort of in limbo with him. Uh, and really, when when you have a season like this, you know, you, as a baseball fan, as a romantic, which I think you kind of have to be as a baseball fan, especially when you root for a team that, that doesn't win all that much, you know, the, these are the moments you look forward to, uh, especially when they're earned. And, 
David Wright has earned everything in the way of sentiment and romance and appreciation from Mets fans. And uh, again, to, to quote somebody else uh, who, who is at least somewhat associated with the Mets in a musical fashion, uh, for Billy Joel, uh, this is the time to remember. Yeah, that is a fair point. And, you know, that was Coldplay in that tribute video. But, um, they, you know, the, the lyrics go, you know, no one said it was going to be easy. It's never easy for the stars in this town, you know, maybe unless they're Yankee stars. Uh, but I, I think back, you know, throughout great players' careers, and I was saying this in the open, Patrick Ewing, David Wright, even Mike Piazza, um, you know, Mark Messier, if you were a Rangers fan, I could go on and on. There's those times when their leadership and their teams, everybody focuses on what's wrong with them. And Wright was no exception. I mean, he went through a rough period after those collapses in 07 and 08. And it's funny hearing what everybody's saying now, including the media, because I heard a lot of people questioning whether he was a clutch player, uh, whether he was worth hanging on to, signing to extension. And, it, you know, rightfully it goes away now, but it makes you always say to yourself, we never really appreciate the moment. It's always after the fact when it's gone that everyone seems to to say, hey, you know, that was fun. That was special. Well, first off, the, the audio the audio that you played uh, you know, from a video that I have watched, it was really well done. Uh, like you said, uh, Coldplay, uh, the name of the song, The Scientist, that was played at Shea Stadium on September 30th, 2007 by a very self-aware uh, audio-video person. Uh, after the collapse of 07, that's what I'll always associate that song with, and I guess David Wright, you know, has has borne responsibility for moments like those. Probably borne responsibility more than he needed to, because he was always the guy front and center on this team. Whether it was, you know, literally after a game, being the guy who answered the questions, or the guy who just said, you know what, it's my fault, uh, or just the fact that he was kind of although it wasn't really his personality, kind of the lightning rod for when things didn't go well. And, you know, he certainly got his share of credit for when things did go well, but he was always kind of the guy in the middle, the guy we looked to. And, you know, when when you ticked off some of those names earlier of, uh, you know, larger-than-life sporting figures of the last, I don't know, 25 or so years in New York, um, that kind of comes with the territory. And he wore it very well. Uh, you, know, you know what What I learned from the years that we had Mike Piazza, especially, and you could, you could apply it really, apply it to Johan Santana, you could apply it to Pedro Martinez when he was still fully healthy and a Met. When you see these guys who operate at that level every day, on one hand, you really do appreciate what separates them from the average player, but you also aren't just getting... You know the Sports Center version, or the MLB Network version, or you know the 60-second clip on MLB.com or wherever. You're kind of getting the warts and all because every day you play baseball, especially a position player like David Wright. And there are days you're just not going to look that good. There are days you're going to go 0 for 4 and you know throw a ball away and not drive in the runner on third with nobody out and you know, when Piazza was in Los Angeles, when Santana was in Minnesota, uh, you know, we didn't see that. And then they get here, and it's like, gee, 
you know, he's he's good. He's really good. Sometimes he's great, but God, you know, there's just some days where, eh, why, why doesn't he take a seat or something? And David Wright, you know, we had his entire career uh, where we probably didn't ever get a chance to really take the long view because we were so in the weeds with him and so invested in every single at bat that we, you know, never saw him from a distance, never saw just the highlights. I mean, not, now we see just the highlights, which is fine, which is great. So, you know, we, we were probably, you know, I, I don't think we were unusually hard on him, but, you know, we were hard on him from an everyday perspective. We wanted the Mets to win every single day, and we, we know that didn't happen. We know that no matter how good they were, that wouldn't have happened. But we've never had anybody like this uh, in terms of constancy, never mind longevity, uh, you know, just the kind of personality, the kind of responsibility, there's that word again, that, that he took for the team, never mind himself, and who succeeded the way he did, and who reaches you know, the end of a road that you know, none of us really wanted to see but was inevitable, having begun the road with us and never straying except unfortunately for health reasons. So it, it's a been a experience living with David Wright as our guy for 15 seasons than it has been really for anybody else in the history of this franchise. It's I think what makes, you know, this moment in that time, you know, so transcendent that we're saying goodbye to somebody like this. Absolutely. Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. You guys know the site, uh, at Greg underscore Prince on Twitter. Uh, one of the things, Greg, I was thinking about with these iconic Mets, captains, leaders, usually the endings are not as clean. You know, you mentioned earlier there's some clarity. I think the organization needed that, even though I think everybody had basically said after 2016, like, it's over. You know, David's never coming back. But there's always that back of your mind wondering. Seaver didn't end well twice. Uh, we know with Hernandez and Carter, it was abbreviated, and it was like you kicked them out the door. Strawberry Gooden, we know what that is. Piazza, it ended, um, but he was kind of pushed out too, and he went to play somewhere else. Right, like you said, started his career here. He was It was a seamless mantle transition from – Piazza to right. I mean, if you remember, Greg, I remember trying to go catch a game down in Binghamton in 2004. Everybody had this guy pegged as the the next, and that doesn't always work out. And it was weird because I remember buying his jersey as a young fan and saying, I hope I don't make a bad investment here because this guy could come up and be a bust. And, and sure enough, we know that that wasn't the case. But this is clean, and but you don't know who's next either. It's really a weird situation because it – it usually doesn't go clean like this in terms of transition for the Mets. And there's usually a down period where, you know, things don't go so well right after those iconic players leave. So we'll see how this turns out, but this is not norm for the organization with how Wright came in so clean and to a certain degree is leaving clean on, on somewhat of his own terms and in some ways, cause he's, he's saying I'm gone. It's not the organization kicking him out the door. Yeah, it, it is a uh, you know really a one of a kind love affair here, because how many certainly position players, how many position players do we get who come up with the notice that he did, who we know is coming from in his case Binghamton, and then they, I guess there was a brief stop at Norfolk, uh, 
and succeed the way he did. And, you know, we know it's only at best a handful of position players who have, you know, even been what we'd call really, you know, productive Mets over a long period of time. And we know far too well how the endings go and how they're always disrupted and in other uniforms, even when they're fairly well-meaning and well-executed, as was the case with Piazza in 2005, he still had two years left to play and, you know, chose to take his talents elsewhere, which, you know, it was inevitable, played out a long contract. Uh, You know, the other guys you mentioned either, you know, got old in baseball parlance or, you know, they just kind of needed to move on. Uh, business being business and all of that, and there are you know more examples beyond those guys. Uh, the thing that makes Rock different is he really wanted to stay here. And to I'll say to the Mets' credit, they weren't stupid enough to let him go, uh, which was not you know a sure thing. Uh, I guess it was two, 2012. They uh, signed him to the extension that that uh, you know has kept him here and unfortunately the disabled list uh, for the last couple of years. But you know, like you said, no, nobody has stayed. You know, they they've had to kind of at at best say you know bon voyage, good luck, and maybe in a couple of years you you'll come back and we'll have a day for you. And you know, even that's been pretty rare. So, but but he made it worthwhile. He, not not only through his actions on the field, which you know, he pretty much owns the top of the record book in just about every offensive category that doesn't involve blazing speed, but he wanted to be here. You know, you you heard it when he announced you know the the decision. You know, he said uh, in his rehabilitation process that the goal eventually went from I want to get back to playing every day when he realized that was impossible. He says. I just want to wear this uniform again, not wear the uniform, not wear a uniform, this uniform. This is somebody who we dream of taking his role as Met captain, Met star, Met player to heart the way we do. You know, maybe some of that is the fact that he grew up a Mets fan, you know, where the Mets had their AAA affiliate. Maybe just some of that, I think more of that is just who he is. Uh, you know, in terms of loyalty and appreciation and just being conscious of, of, of what he's doing and who he is. And, God, that, that so outweighs the occasional pop-up with the you know, runners in scoring position or, you know, the, the ball that just got under his glove or anything like that. Um, you know, he, he has been, you know, a, a singular figure in Mets history, and it's the one time... I'd like to say there are more, but really, it's the one time the Mets didn't screw it up, and uh, you know we don't have to look at we we don't have that weird photo that will pop up now and then on social media of David Wright in a Braves uniform or David Wright in a White Sox <laughs> uniform or, or any uniform you care to name. He's in a Mets uniform forever, uh, right, right right up through next weekend, and that you know call, call, call us silly, but that means a lot to us. Uh, absolutely, Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. You know, this is – and Jill Sherman wrote about this earlier this weekend about how, you know, the cold hard facts, the business side of the game, all the data we have now, you know, makes it so impersonal at times, the relationship between team and fan and individual players. And look, if you really want to go back in history and you look at the Mets at 2011, 2012, a team post-Madoff, 
a lot of financial problems for the the ownership group. Basically, baseball purgatory. They could not invest in the team. The right thing, the cold hard facts were to do, uh, you know, trade right, get assets, rebuild and restart over. And I'm not sure if they did that, you know, if they wouldn't have been in the World Series in 2015 because we know how he was out most of the year. But it also would have denied uh, the fan base this run and and those final moments and this relationship. I don't know if the relationship with Wright is what it is today if this thing gets muted back in 2012. Now, the facts were at the time maybe this was a bad business decision. Forget the fact that you didn't know the injuries just because of where the team was. But the organization invested in him, and uh, and I guess that's the part of the game that's going away because if you really want to strip this down to the bear, uh, bad move, right? I mean, it's interesting how things are looked at now and how the Mets could have probably or maybe be in a different spot today, maybe for the better, if they had just said time to walk away, trade him to St. Louis or Atlanta or whoever needed him as a component piece to get to the postseason and maybe beyond. Now, I'm trying to imagine that if they had traded David Wright before signing him to you know, an extension that would keep him at the rest of his career, not, not that we knew how long the rest of his career would, would, would truly turn out to be. Uh, I don't know what they would have gotten, and I don't know that it would have positioned them for the future any better. You know, with hindsight, we do know that 2015 happened, and David Wright was a part of it. I won't say he was the you know, the instigator. He was there at the very beginning of the season when they got off to you know, what, what became a historic start, and he was there to help push them across the finish line and, and had a few memorable moments, uh, including you know, his, first, uh, his first and only World Series. But I, you know, I... I understand the impulse when a guy's contract is winding down. The team isn't going anywhere. Certainly the Mets were under all kinds of constraints and burdens. And to say, you know, let's rebuild. But, you know, you have to you have to, have to have something to root for other than just the concept of maybe they will get better. And we need to, to build this up, and we just need to keep bringing in pieces that will somehow – Click and what one of the satisfying things about that 2015 team, even putting right aside because you know he he was unfortunately out with the stenosis uh, when they really caught fire, but you know that that was also the team of Daniel Murphy and Lucas Duda and John Neese and a couple other guys who had been there a while. Ruben Tejada was you know had been there uh, a few years at that point. Uh, some other guys, you know, a couple of years less, but they were into their careers having started as Mets. And you know, those things make you happy as a fan and make it extra satisfying as a fan. See those guys come along, get better, have setbacks, overcome them, coalesce. You know, yes, obviously you need pieces added. Certainly, you know, the biggest trade deadline piece of all time in Mets history and Ioannis Espinos was, was the huge driver on that team. But it meant more because David Wright was there getting some key base hits and, you know, tipping his cap, uh, introducing the World Series, then going out and, you know, swinging the bat and hitting the first home run at City Field in a World Series game. So, you know, 
that's got to be worth something too. Was it worth eight years and what, what was the total? Under twenty million, something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You know, who, yeah. who was probably you not? Know, you knew you, you, you knew it wouldn't be on on paper because it never is. Because we we had lived through Piazza's long term contract, Beltron's long term contract, Santana's long term contract. All of them either Hall of Famers or certainly worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. They were at that level when they got here, and to a certain extent, to a great extent, they continued at that level when they got here, but they were all going to fall off in the latter years you know, because of age, because of health, and you'd be saying, God, you know, why are we, we, <laughs> as, as standing for our team, why are we still paying this guy so much money when he's not producing at that level anymore, and boy, imagine we could get this many pieces and grow them and love a new team and a lot has to go right for that to happen. Um, you, you sort of, you sort of accept that. I think, you know, you're seeing fewer contracts like that in baseball these days, and that's probably a good thing, but for the Mets to do it when they did with David Wright was significant because it, it guaranteed that we were not going to have to, you know, wonder, you know, what went wrong and why is he on this other team and why is he probably, you know, in without knowing what his health was going to be, you know, why, why is he in the World Series or some team we can't stand or some team we never cared about? And remember, we had just gone through, you know, they, they traded Beltron, they had gotten nothing for, for Reyes, they were not re-signing Reyes, uh, you, know, and a, you know, a whole back catalog of stuff like that. And with all due respect to, to, to all of those guys, none of them was David Wright in the in the scheme of Met things. Uh, certainly among position players, there, there has been no David Wright in the scheme of Met things. And really, you know, you, you could make an excellent case that once, once you get past Tom Seaver, there's been nobody, period, like David Wright in the scheme of Met things. So that had to be worth something. Again, when, when I, you look at the whatever they were committing to David Wright in terms of numbers versus what they could have been using that for over the last few years or even from 2013 forward when, when his new deal kicked in. Um, would it have gone to better use? Would it have literally made the team better? I have no idea. Maybe the front office would have done great things with it. Maybe they would have gotten, you know, four minor leaguers who never amounted to anything. Um, but you don't want to get rid of David Wright if, if you don't have to. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily construct your franchise on, on this uh, on, on this rock, so to speak. But uh, I'm glad it not, – not the not playing part, but that he goes out as a Met and there was never anything but a Met. I'm glad it, glad it worked out this way. Yeah, and you mentioned the postseason and 15, and some will say, well, it, it really ended badly for David. He didn't play for two years. He's going to play in this ceremonial-type game on the 29th. But 2015, it gets remembered for Murphy, rightfully so. It gets remembered for Familia closing out games and gets remembered for a due to throw to home plate to a certain degree at the end. But there was so much David Wright down the stretch in August and September the National Series uh, Labor Day weekend, the sweep, uh, his run scoring and his fist pump, uh, you know, the game he had on the clincher, the NL East clincher against Cincinnati. I believe he had a home run in that game. And then you look, yeah, he got one hit against the Dodgers in the NLDS, but he's face, facing Kershaw and Granke. I mean, geez. 
And that one hit was against a tough reliever throwing hard late in L.A. to get a two RBIs and win a game. He played well against the Cubs. He was on base, and he, and he had an RBI uh, double, I believe. Uh, and then he had the home run in the World Series. And, yeah, I know about the throw, and part of what happened with Duda was Wright's fault. I mean, but there was – you know, he was a part of that, and I don't know if the Mets get there without him. If he doesn't get that big hit in game one, maybe there isn't Murphy. Maybe it's a sweep. You know, you don't know. It's That's the part, I guess, even me, when you think back – you forget he had a big part in that postseason. The numbers don't play it out. The numbers are pedestrian. They're bad in some cases, but he was a big part. And without him, there is no Murphy. There is no World Series. And that 15 season, which you wrote about in a book, I know it ended, you know, disappointment, but it goes down as a special place in team history, a special season in Mets history. Yeah, I, w- I would not remove David Wright from the narrative of 2015 for anything. Um, and not just for sentimental reasons. You, you know, outlined some of the big hits he had. You know, that, that Dodgers series was no sure thing. If anything, the Mets were underdogs. Winning game one was no sure thing, and he did have that big hit. And it, it never occurred to me throughout that postseason that, oh, we got to get right out of there. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're basically, you know, wheeling him out there. Uh, can't, can't we put a defensive replacement in the sixth inning? It wasn't like that. He was a integral part of that lineup, of that infield. And, you know, the, certainly the uh, the sentimental factor was a bonus at that point. Yeah, you're trying to win a world championship. And, you know, that that was really, you know, in, in the uh, the classic, you know, how did you enjoy the rest of the play, Mrs. Lincoln? You know, that, that was the only down part of the 2015 story was, no, we, we didn't get to complete the job and beat the Royals and, you know, win a world series, which would have been spectacular. But, that, you know, that was a huge season in the in the sweep of Mets history because if you think about where this franchise had been not just as recently as the year before, but really most of the decade, which you know, essentially is David Wright's career, uh David Wright up to that moment was a guy who who played on one division winner. And it was a very memorable division winner and a very memorable season, but that kind of got obscured by the way two thousand six ended. 2007-8, excellent teams that were not long enough, and then that kind of obfuscates how good the guy was because he was at his peak then. And then you have all those crummy seasons from 2009 to 2014 where other than some you know, briefly transcendent individual performances, you know, we just had a lot of 74 and 88 type seasons. So to get to 2015, and to get there with and to a degree because of David Wright made it that much more special. So, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, David Wright circa 2007, if you get him into a postseason, if they, you know, win a couple more games or don't lose a couple more games, I should say, down the stretch, and they, they actually continue on as a dominant team, you know, what that David Wright does uh, at the, the prime of his powers, the peak of his career. But, you know, that's just one of those things you're just never going to know. I, I think what, one of the things that really has impressed me in you know, really was a reminder because it wasn't really anything new, but what really impressed me in the wake of the news of the fact that he's going to finish up, just how much respect there is for him across baseball, not just it's not just an internal thing. It's not here where we're all kind of shaking each other's hands and saying, isn't David Wright great for a Met? Uh, you know, in Boston – 
on Saturday, the fact that Dustin Pedroia, you know, two-time world champion and American League MVP and perhaps a uh, Hall of Famer himself someday, you know, took the time out to present David with a a number five from the Fenway scoreboard. And you're suddenly reminded, oh, yeah, you know, the guys like David Wright are the guys who merit these sort of farewell tours, which I don't think David Wright would have been comfortable with (laughs) because he's just not that kind of a attention seeker. But you know, all all the, the quotes that have come in from all around baseball and people who played with him and against him and people who have, you know, to watched him, you know, from a professional standpoint all say the same thing that this guy was just not just one of the best players, but you know, <laughs> among the very best people to play the game and you know, not not that we haven't had other good people and good players, but you're just not used to a net being in that conversation. As a Mets fan, we 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 often just kind of feel forgotten. Yeah, you know, on in on the big major league, uh, you know, diamond. David always represented the Mets. He always meant something to represent the Mets to be that guy, and he followed through. And that's you know, keep coming back to why this is such a special moment and such a special occasion. You know, this probably doesn't matter, but it's always fun to debate. You know, you could argue that Beltron is the best overall position player in Mets history because of the whole position and multiple talents and seasons and you watch all the strawberries career and and listen howard johnson had some great years at third base maybe years that with his speed and his versatility to play short might have been you know better than right do you consider right the best offensive player and position player in team history because of the other factors with the team the postseason the captain the off the field is or do you still look at guys like strawberry and and piazza perhaps, as, as the gold standard. Uh, just curious your thoughts on that. I've actually been thinking about that. I mean, it, to, to me, the, the question you know, in, the, in the years before David established himself fully was, you know, Seaver's number one pitcher. We all know that. Uh, kind of Wayne Hernandez versus Piazza, the with Strawberry, kind of in the conversation. But something about the way, you know, Hernandez defined his time and his team's and and just so changed the equation where the Mets were concerned and, you know, li- listed them and led them, and, you know, certainly with Strawberry and, of course, others, <laughs> if I can be so real cavalier in describing people like Gary Carter and, and Dwight and, and Piazza, you know, just generated so much drama for the good, <laughs> so many moments, listed a team that was sometimes ordinary to extraordinary, so, you know, it was always a matter of kind of weighing what each of those guys brought. And then you bring David Wright in, who was never quite as spectacular as either one of them, maybe didn't have quite the impact of a Hernandez in, in changing, you know, the way you talked about the Mets, and he didn't quite have, you know, as many oh-my-God moments as Piazza. And, you know, his postseason experience was a little more limited uh, you know, they, you know, well, two postseasons, which I guess was the same as Piazza and one World Series. So maybe it's pretty close, actually. Now thinking about it, but uh, you know, two, two, you know, very, two nine years apart. It's kind of hard to remember. Um, but you know, he was there longer, and he did put up you know those quietly sensational numbers. You know, he never won an MVP, not not that any Met has, and you know, I don't think he ever finished higher. Well, he finished sixth. In 2012, I think he finished fourth in 2007, somewhere in there. So you know, he yeah, was, fourth you know, in 2007. 
Yeah, so and then he got votes on a on a whole bunch of occasions, and he was you know, an All Star seven times. But you know, he never put up the you know the the thirty nine one oh eight, which I think was uh, you know strawberry standard. Uh, you know, he didn't hit forty home runs in a year, which Piazza did uh, for the Mets anyway, at least once. Uh, and again, you know, Hernandez would just go out and be Keith Hernandez. I mean, the, the, the Gold Glove was a given with Keith Hernandez, and, and he certainly wasn't just known for his defense. He was the premier clutch hitting player, really, of, of, of an entire decade and generation. But God, David Wright would just go out there and be star level every day for so long, and kind of bring it back what we saw at the beginning. You, you kind of took it for granted. So when you factor in the longevity, the constancy, uh, really. And then you, you layer on top of it, you know, how he just embraced the role as captain. He took that seriously. He didn't need to wear a C, but he, you know, he, he wore it in his soul. And, you know, we all kind of knew it was coming from the time he was in his second year, basically. I, re- I can remember, you know, er- early in the, uh, the, the history of faith and fear and, and, and you know, when, when blogs were kind of popping up in general for the first time, so like, when are they going to name David Wright captain? I was thinking David Wright at the time was like 23. <laughs> he was on a team with Carlos Delgado and Carlos Beltran, and they were getting Paul LaDuke and Billy Wagner. And they had Tom Glavin. They had Pedro Martinez. And you're going to ask this guy to be the captain of all of those guys? And, and I'll throw in Cliff Floyd, too. Uh, so David, David Wright was very happy being a protege and uh, serving his apprenticeship and then being humble. And then, you know, you turned around one day and it made all the sense in the world that, you know, David Wright was, was leading a uh, leading your favorite team. And, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't much of a team by then. But um, so it's so a long way of answering your question, Mike. Um, yeah, I think, you know, put it all together. I'm comfortable, at least provisionally. It's one of those things that, uh, you know, the next time I write about it, I'll, I'll probably go through it all again and, and maybe come out with a different uh, outcome. I, I'm comfortable calling him the greatest position player the Mets have ever had, home, homegrown or otherwise. Uh, one last thing as well is, and I talked about this, I mean, who's next? Who's going to take the mantle from Wright? I mean, is, is that man on the team? Is it Conforto? Is it Nimmo? I mean, McNeil, you know, 50 games has made this tremendous impact like we've never seen, a surprising impact. Um, you know, I, I always think it's a, I know Franco was a captain, and I know Seaver, who he was, and but I always think position players have to be that guy because they play every day. Um, do you have thoughts? Or is that guy not on the team right now? And sometimes, and we've seen it with Piazza, you can acquire it, but it's hard because you, you just don't come in and become a leader. And you don't become Mr. Met just by walking in. You have to perform and you have to put yourself out there. Like Piazza, there were some tough times for the better part of a year or so. And, um, you know, what's next? Who's going to be the next David Wright in the sense where they could perform at a high level but also be that, I guess, standard that the organization now has where, you know, he went out there and was a good soldier off the field. He was dedicated to the job. He was dedicated to the team. That combination along with on-field performance, not easy to find. You know that very well over the years. Well, I, I think the dynamic is going to have to present itself to us, and you know, a, a, a word that is kind of loaded when considering baseball, the, the chemistry will have to present itself, uh, not just to us, certainly, but you know, w- within the, the, the team itself and whoever constitutes the team. I mean, we're, so, again, P- Piazza was always, you know, 
the front-facing star, but he was never, you know, his personality wasn't really about, okay, guys, let's go. Um, there was always somebody else, you know, whether you want to say it was his lieutenants or whatever, if you want to use that kind of language. But you know, the, the Mets, it's always struck me that the Mets always seem to have their quote-unquote leader emerge from outside. They get a guy like Robin Ventura from the White Sox, and suddenly he's kind of like, you know, they didn't, he wasn't the captain, but he was kind of the team leader when he got here. Todd Zeal, who'd been everywhere, was suddenly sort of a team leader when he got here. I mean, Keith Hernandez came here and took over. And you know, even, even on a, you know, a, a more fleeting basis, you, you've had guys like that. I mean, you know, some guys who, who weren't superstars, guys like Alex Cora, who's now, you know, quite, quite the leader as a manager of the Red Sox, uh, you know, sort of a guy that was kind of looked to because you could bring a veteran in and he'd have some kind of impact, maybe not on the field. So, uh, you you don't know who's waiting out there, um, who might be brought in uh, among the guys who were here. I mean, you you, you have, I and mean, this has been one of the pleasant surprises of the last third of the season. You know, you've, you've had this very watchable team that I don't think any of us were expecting based on how things were going up until the two-thirds mark approximately. And much of that, putting aside the pitching, which, again, is a big thing to put aside because that, that's really why the Mets have, have been uh, had a chance to begin with this year. Uh, you know, you've had four relatively young guys in Conforto, in Nimmo, in McNeil, who was on basically nobody's radar, and Ahmed Rosario. Uh, and I don't know how all the personalities are going to play out, how it will all mesh, how it will mix with whoever is brought in. You would, One would assume that, the Mets will continue to bring guys in. And, you know, you still have a guy like Todd Frazier. Again, that classic, here's the veteran who's sort of the team leader now, you know, on, at least on an ad hoc basis. And a guy like Jay Burst, you know, again, guys who aren't, those guys aren't going to be here for the long term. But, you know, every, you know, every season kind of writes its own story. Remember, the, the year we were just talking about, 2015, uh, we, don't, we never mentioned Michael Kadire. Michael Kadire was a huge part of that team internally. Uh, Juan Uribe and Kelly Johnson, not not only to to give the bench a little uh, a little boost, but that they were important guys to have down the stretch. That you know, never mind a guy like Joanna Cespedes, and you know the the impact he he may have had. So you you don't know, I guess is is the answer. I mean, yeah, if I, if I had if I had to put a buck on somebody, I'd say sure, Conforto. He seems up for up for the challenge. He doesn't mind talking to the press, and he doesn't mind the attention, and he certainly succeeded. Uh, to a certain degree in a relatively short career. I mean, I, you know, so I haven't given up on Rosario. He certainly played very well the last, you know, couple of months. And I really, you know, just like the way he came across when he first came up, like he knew how to be a big leaguer. And obviously there were, there were some steps to be, to be taken. Uh, Nimmo is an incredible personality. And I don't know how that, translates into the kind of things we were talking about, leadership and all of that, but he certainly loves playing the game and seems to adore being a Met. And, you know, Jeff McNeil, you know, fell from the sky, it seems like, or at least was, was lying there on the ground and nobody bothered to notice until this year, you know, until he made himself, as they say, indispensable. So, um, you know, the, the long answer is I don't know. Or the short answer is I don't know my, my, my long way of answering it. So, which, again, I think shows you just how rare a commodity like leadership 
encapsulated into a package like David Wright is and was, and you know how lucky we were to have him. What do you got coming up? Uh, obviously, you've written uh, quite a few books, Faith and Fear and Flushing. You can get Greg on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince. What do you got up? What can you uh, let the audience know about? Um, also, will you be at the September 29th game? I know that the tickets and, and the media availability, I'm sure, are going to be very, very difficult to obtain. But let us yeah. know what's next for Greg Prince. Uh, next is, as as we are recording this, I am going to watch Jacob deGrom uh, try to win a game against the Red Sox today, which, you know, sh- shouldn't sound like it's such a Herculean task, but we know what uh, wins and uh, losses, uh, how they have behaved in the presence of the, the, I believe is the greatest pitcher in baseball going up against Chris Sale, at least for the first few innings. So that will be exciting, and I'll write about that afterwards. Uh, uh, you know, we're working on some other projects uh Perhaps that will perhaps be uh, in a position to announce that right now. Uh, please read Faith and Fear and Flushing, and uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you know, if you if, if you are, are up for a uh, a long read in the off season, uh, so, as you were kind enough to mention, several books uh, available on Amazon and elsewhere. So um, you know, I'm going to try to enjoy the Mets for the next two weeks. Unfortunately, I do not have a ticket for September 20th. I have a ticket for September 30th. Uh, I always go to the final home game of the year. I'm, I'm sort of the, the Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing of, of Met games that way. I always try to get the last dance of the summer. But um, we'll, we'll see about September 29th or, uh, you know, if, if Mickey Calloway is good to his word, uh, you know, using David to pinch it if he's up for it. Uh, maybe on the last day, maybe one of the games before. So we'll see. Well, Greg, enjoy the game. Enjoy the Cy Young matchup uh, up in Boston. And uh, we'll we'll talk again and appreciate some thoughts about David Wright. Be well, my friend. Thank you, thank you so much, Mike. You be well. That's uh, Greg Prince, Faith and Fear, Flushing at Greggins underscore Prince on Twitter. Let's take a break. Final thoughts. Wrap up right after this. Hey, Mets fans! I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. All right, final thoughts. Uh, Good stuff from Greg Prince. Hope you enjoyed it. So, um, I was thinking about just real quick this David Wright situation, and here's what I would like to do because you could do this kind of show. I mean, do you wait till he does the final game? You know, there'll be more conversation about Wright on that day. But I thought you you kind of do a reflective thing from a podcast segment internally with yourself and a guest, and then on the weekend of the 29th, which would be the last podcast until Mets do something GM wise. That'll probably heat up after that maybe take a couple of weeks off as the postseason starts right after that. 
maybe what we'll do is we'll open it up to a live call-in show for you, the fans, to hear what your thoughts are, your memories, and and maybe we'll tie it into the end of the Mets season and what you want to see them doing forward, but make it more about the end of the season. So that would be September 30th, the Sunday, September 30th. Maybe we'll see if we can make a big deal about that. So that was my thoughts and, and just figured I'd give you guys an idea. A uh, couple more podcasts to go before that. Uh, you know, next week uh, there's another week, and then there's the right, the homestand and right and all that stuff, and then on to the off season. So anyway, want to thank uh, everybody for tuning in. Hope everybody enjoyed uh, today's podcast. Want to thank our buddy Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. Check him out at Greg underscore Prince. Of course, I want to thank the good folks over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Appreciate you letting me use that uh, tribute video, that tribute audio. You can check me out all the time on Twitter at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. <laughs>